Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast. This free podcast is made possible through gifts by people like you. Please consider making a donation through the donate button on the website to help us offer unique audio, video, and text-based teachings on the internet and to grow this community library. Michael's teaching bridges the gap between inner healing and social change by synthesizing traditional spiritual teachings with the insights of the West. To learn about Michael's international retreats and workshops, please visit michaelstoneteaching.com. Thank you for your support. So yesterday we ended with this notion that whether a being is born from the air, whether they have form or no form, whether they have perception or no perception, etc., etc., we want to liberate them all. But even though you want to liberate all beings, not a single being is liberated. The reason why we're going really slow with this text is because um, this text has a pattern to it, and once you get the first five or six chapters, they just repeat again and again and again. So um, I'm setting you up for you to study uh, when you get home. But the, my reading of this is that the way to live your blessedness and entrustment is to vow to liberate all beings. That's how we ended yesterday. You have this appreciation of your life, and it's not enough just to lie around thinking about that, or, um, I don't know, more shopping. We need to do something about this blessedness. And so we want to help others and we want to liberate others, and we want to find freedom from others. So it begins with this supremely altruistic thought. How can I liberate others? And then you get a sense that not only do you want to liberate others, you want to do it because you love others. You love all beings. You ever have this experience? You're calm and you're walking around and you just start falling in love with people. You don't even know them, but you know, you catch someone's eye and that's it. So there's this sense not only just that you love other beings, but somehow you want to serve them. You want to provide them with some kind of welfare. So what this paragraph is saying in my mind is that the benefit of our practice must be wider than just the benefit to our body or to our material well-being. The benefit of the practice has to uh, draw the circle of the self much, much wider. And that's why when we finish every day, we chant. We remind ourselves that life and death are important, that time passes very quickly and that we should wake up so that we don't squander our life. How do you not squander your life? You wish that all beings are happy and healthy and safe 
and free from danger. Because if other people are unsafe, you're unsafe. You also know what it's like to be haunted by your ancient and twisted karma. Don't you love that line? That line's so good. And so you want for other people for them to be relieved of their ancient and their twisted karma. And the last one is, may all beings be free from every form of suffering. Why? Because all organisms are very fragile. Even us. We're all very fragile. Yesterday I had so much energy. Last night I was basically lying on the floor in the bathroom of an Airbnb. <laughs> and also, freedom and welfare are linked together. We can't be free if we're not helping other people. Maybe another more crude way of saying that is you can't get happy without other people. You ever tried this? You ever tried to get happy all by yourself? But then you notice you do stuff with other people and it's a deeper, richer happiness. So I wanted to give you my own commentary on this section rather than the Thich Nhat Hanh commentary, which is that I don't think that we can really know what liberating beings actually means. I think that phrase, we want to liberate all beings, which touches on your question yesterday, I think we can't know what that means. It's impossible to know what that is. When you say, I want to liberate all beings, it's just too big. And that is why we have spiritual practice. And it's why religions grow. Because we need to do things with our, we need to stretch our imagination to have a vision for how to live. That's just so much grander so much grander than the superficial imagination that most of us live in. And I feel like one of the teachings of the Diamond Sutra is that your imagination is so small. So stretch your imagination. Stretch your imagination to see that our deepest desire is actually to want to help others and Every time you think it's someone else that you're trying to help, you've missed it. Because there are no others that you can help. And the Buddha is saying, that's how you walk. That's how you should think. And that's how you should live. With this imagination that is so altruistic. Tao Chuan, a commentator on this, says it like this. When you're happy, I'm not. When you're sad, I'm not. A crane thinks of flying north or south. A swallow thinks of its old nest. Autumn moon and spring flower thoughts never end. You only need to know yourself right now. I think he describes everyone's mind in that poem, in meditation practice. That person's happy, I'm not. That person's sad, I'm not. Do you ever have that? Someone's practicing on their yoga mat next to you and you're like, 
God, I am so much better. I'm so, I'm so much more flexible. Even though it's their first class. Autumn moon and spring flower thoughts never end. So those kind of thoughts don't stop either. But you know, the only thing that's important is to know yourself right now. The only thing that's important is to know yourself right now. So that's an interesting common commentary on this section. We've been taught, forget about yourself. <laughs> Go help others. And the only way to do that is look at how you think and really get to know yourself right now. And maybe this is where the Buddha's teaching and most of the Abrahamic religions really depart, which is in the Abrahamic religions, we tend to stretch ideas so big that they become eternal beliefs, God and the afterlife and so on. In the Buddha's teaching, we're stretching our ideas so far that it comes back down to you. There isn't a God that's going to make this happen. You have to make this happen. You have to work with your mind. Many of our troubles, many of our troubles um, have their origin in the past. Have you noticed this? You can see this all the time. Let's say you meet somebody and uh, you're really hot for them and you exchange messages. Do, oh, sorry, is that old fashioned? Do people do that anymore? Okay, what's it, sorry, what's another way of saying it? You swipe to the left. <laughs> to the left or the right? <laughs> to the right, you swipe to the right. And then you exchange phone numbers. Do you exchange phone numbers? <laughs> Rose, do you want to come up and give this part of the Okay, let, I'm not going to use that example. But let's, say, let's say you meet someone and you give them your number. And then um, you give them their number and then uh, they leave a message for you. And you can't believe it. This person who's really cute now has given you their number. And so you're all like excited by this. And the message is something like, um, uh, we should meet sometime. And then you show it to your friends. You're all together and you're like, what does this mean? <laughs> Do you think this is the kind of person we could have like a, a marriage? Do you think? A marriage, possibly. <laughs> what, is, what is the message? Do you know this process of like decoding messages? Or you're at work, and your boss says something to you, and you can't quite read the tone. You don't know if it means they like you or they don't like you. Have you had these experiences this week? Whenever we're having experiences, especially relational, there's always a fusion between what's happening in the present and the maps we have from the past. It's often really hard to separate out the current thing that's happening from the maps we have of what's happening. 
in the past. And this creates a lot of suffering. When I was a kid in grade one, I really hated school. I went to a Hebrew, uh, Hebrew school. And uh, in the mornings, school was in English. In the afternoon, school was in Hebrew. And I hated it. So um, I tried communicating this to my parents, telling them how much I hated school. And uh, then they didn't do anything about it. So then one day, um, I was standing in the hallway. And I wouldn't go into the class. I didn't want to go into the class. And I thought to myself, I remember this so well. I was thinking about this while I was on the bathroom floor last night. <laughs> and I thought to myself, I could just make myself pee right here in my pants, and my mother would be here in 10 minutes. And she'd have to pick me up. So I peed. And it just went, do you remember that feeling? Yeah, so warm, into the shoe. And then, to the left was the classroom, and to the right was the um, sort of glass office where the secretaries are working. And the secretary was watching the whole thing. And so she said, you know, come here. So I came, and, and I was like a little bit teary. And she said, I'll call your mom. And my mom came, and she picked me up. And I will never forget. Actually, my clearest childhood memory is the drive home when she picked me up. I'm in the car, we're going down Bathurst Street, sun's out. Um, my mom had bought some fresh uh, baked something and like I could smell it in the car and everything was perfect. And we're all gonna do this. We're gonna find some strategy so that we can soothe ourselves when we're under distress. The next year, I was still at the same school, and I hated it. And I tried to communicate to my parents how much I hated it. And my mom wasn't exactly like the most attuned mother. Far from it, actually. And um, so uh, one day I decided, the pee thing's not going to work. So you know those big, huge, green garbage uh, bins? that the garbage trucks come with the two forks and dump back. So I decided I would light it on fire. So that's what I did. I, I lit it on fire. I got caught. I got suspended. And then uh, a week later, I got to go back to school. But the school was being renovated. Um, this is Bialik Hebrew Day School. Does anybody know this school in Bathurst Street? School was being renovated, so they were in the process of moving the school to a, a, a temple nearby. And when I got to the temple on the first day, I pulled the fire alarm. <laughs> and that was it. That was it. Not only did they kick me out of school, but they also kicked my brother out of school. <laughs> Who actually really liked the school. <laughs> but I guess, I guess they just thought he was going the same direction. And I was in you know, grade two, so he was just in you know, senior kindergarten. Anyways. Um, If you have uh, healthy and consistent attachments, 
when you grow up, meaning that your parents are fairly attuned to your needs, uh, one of the things you learn is how to regulate your emotions, how to feel your emotions when they're out of whack. And that's a very, very important practice as an adult. Because when you're kids, your parents, most caregivers, are pretty in tune. Pretty in tune. But when you become an adult, other adults aren't necessarily so in tune. So you spend a lot of time being frustrated. A lot of time being frustrated. And when you're frustrated, and you don't know how to regulate your emotions, then um, you tend to do stupid things. Is this true for anybody in here? <laughs> so self-regulation is knowing that your body and your psyche can hold what you're feeling. And it happens because caregivers at a young age helped you hold what you were feeling. If you had caregivers who weren't so attuned, then maybe it was harder for you to regulate your emotions and different uh, physical states. When you have an internal ability to modulate what's happening in you, you get what psychologists call a secure base. You feel a secure base inside you. As an adult, the way that manifests is that you can experience ways that you're defensive. You can experience uh, reactivity from inside and reactivity from outside. Um, and it's okay. Is this making sense? So for example, if you're in the kitchen and you're stuffing your face, eating, and you're uh, walking back and forth and you can't sit down and you're watching yourself do this, that's an attempt at self-regulating. That's trying to find a way to settle yourself. <coughs> Caregivers, they need to be uh, attuned enough, uh, kind enough, regular enough, and mirror our feelings enough so that we can feel free enough. And the child psychologist Donald Winnicott calls this uh, going on being. And what he means by that is the kid has an experience that he or she can just go on being. And the ultimate example of that is a kid playing by themselves. Mom or dad is nearby. Not on top of them, not too far away. Kids just playing on their own. So there's a sense of resiliency in the organism of the kid. Why, when we practice meditation, are we always learning to come back to the breath? I feel like one of the reasons is because we're trying to learn how to soothe ourselves all the time. It seems naive when uh, contemporary spiritual teachers and meditation teachers don't take into account how significant troubles with self-soothing are. 
when it comes to meditation practice. Someone wakes up early in the morning and goes to sit down and all their history of how efficient they are at self-soothing is right there. Sometimes I even call meditation reparenting. I have students who have such trouble regulating themselves that they can't even close their eyes. Because if they close their eyes, there's so much turmoil inside. So we have to start very, very, very slow. Building an adequate trust that they can close their eyes. Or if someone has like really intense anxiety when they sit down, I say to them, find your breathing in a place where your breath feels pleasurable. Even if you have anxiety, I bet you can find somewhere in your body where there's some pleasure in your breath and then put your hand there. And just hold your hand there. Put your hand where you feel discomfort, and that's a really, really good start. In many ways, when we're starting to move into deeper aspects of practice, it involves deeper levels of self-soothing. So sitting builds a lot of trust. And the trust happens by learning a, a kind of method of practice that's focused on creating the conditions for spaciousness, creating the conditions for safety, creating the conditions for calmness. And I said this yesterday, but I just want to like nail it again, if that's possible which is a lot of us, when we start practicing, we're too on top of our practice. The Buddha never talked about practice as having to do with a self. He talked about practice as like rainwater landing on the top of a mountain and then collecting in rivulets and then the rivulets turning into rivers and then the rivers becoming larger rivers and heading down towards the ocean. And the job of the yogi was to notice the obstacles for this natural movement of the water. And that's why he often called, the Buddha often called his followers um, stream enterers. To step into that stream and let the practice do its work. If you just keep taking care of the field of practice, something emerges that wasn't there before. I think I said that yesterday. A stability emerges and a compassion emerges. In contemporary uh, transpersonal psychology, there's a wonderful term that's becoming more and more populated, coined by a guy named John Wellwood, called spiritual bypassing, which I'm not going to talk about so much today. But the basic idea of spiritual bypassing is we have 
we've been promised that if we do these practices we're learning, we will become awake and we won't have so many problems. But it turns out that a lot of the ways we do these practices, especially when we don't have relationships with teachers, and especially when we're in environments where Sangha is not really tight, then we start to do certain practices that do help wake us up in one silo, but then we have this other silo of developmental issues that were never touched. And that's when you get big scandals in communities. Where you can have someone who's like a really good meditator, who really believes that their practice is going to solve everything, but um, they keep fucking up their relationships. You guys ever heard of this story? <laughs> so that's why I want to add into this idea of compassion that when we're talking about altruistic compassion, the circle of the self is so big that not only does it include everything we can think and not think of, it also includes this. This even though we don't know what this is. You don't know who you are, but you know the patterns that come up in your life where it's hard to soothe yourself. And where your reactivity causes you to make stupid decisions. I never used to use the word stupid. It's just like, it's like two weeks old now. I, I really like it. <laughs> Everything's stupid now. <laughs> People in our culture, all of us, we suffer from a severe degree of alienation. We're alienated from family. We're alienated from the body. We're alienated from our emotions, from elders, and from nature. So we need a guiding vision for how to be for how to live. We also need practices that turn those guiding visions into embodied experiences. If we're going to take paths that go beyond our ego, we need to understand how the ego functions and have a lot of respect for our ego. because our psychological wounds are always relational and our ego is relational. Our sense of self is constructed through relationship. So what I'm suggesting is that if we're going to take this stretched out idea of radical altruism into our lives, then we also have to see the way we shut down in reaction to not feeling seen, not being recognized, being frustrated, not getting what we want, not being accepted, not being loved the way we want to be loved. But here's the punchline. 
is that if you can stay with those feelings, which is why we're here, then you can access the love that you've been cut off from. Because we're human beings uh, waking up to become Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, and we're also Buddhas and Bodhisattvas trying to be human. And we need to keep both sides working together. So I have a question for you. And I, I want you to work on this question before we keep going on the Diamond Sutra. Is I'd like to know, um, are there any times in your life where you have a hard time bringing mindfulness to what's going on? Is there anything that comes up in your life where you just can't show up for it? You can't be present. It's too uncomfortable. It's too agitating. Um, and you're annoyed by this because you see that if you're going to develop as a bodhisattva, as someone who wants to care for other beings, you know you can do it. And once in a while you taste it. But there's these habits that that you just have such a hard time bringing mindfulness to, and you want to know how to bring mindfulness to it. That's what I want to explore. Was there a hand up there? Yeah, I was going to answer it. <laughs> I, was just, I was just going to say, I found it really challenging when I was a partner sexually to stay mindful because it's so overwhelming. When you talk about the self-soothing, it's so self-soothing. How do you bring mindfulness into sexuality when you're with an intense partner? <clears throat> can I pause and get back to that, that yeah. question? But that's a great question. Did everybody hear the question? How, how do you bring mindfulness to sexuality? And, and especially an intense partner. We'd have to unpack what intense means. I'm sure some people are like, intense partner? I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm not a sexual, uh, sexual educator or coach or anything like that. Um, but I, I, I would suggest, just off the top of my head, that like, I think always the key to deepening any kind of relationship, whether it's sexual or whatever, is like, listen and slow down. Always. It's the same thing in meditation practice. Listen. I mean, of course, there's like passion and whatever, but like in relationship with people, whether it's sexually or any kind of communication with our bodies, to listen and to slow down is like the, ba the baseline. The baseline. But maybe we can get back to that a little bit more. I, mean, I was going to say, too, because so, so, many, so many people work in hierarchical situations, so yeah. bosses or others in authority yeah. over us, it's very hard to stay mindful in, yeah. in that environment where yeah. your careers matter and yeah. you, know, you go to the table, yeah. so you, you're 
maybe biding their time uh-huh. more than yep. being authentic. Yeah. So, so here's what I'd like to do. Let, let's make groups of four. And I want you to get together and just share in your group. What place in your life is just so hard to bring a meditative awareness to? Maybe for some of you it's going to be a work environment. Maybe it'll be sex. Maybe it'll just be, I can't even get on my cushion. Um, and nobody is going to respond to you. You're just going to share together as a group. No one's going to give you advice. Is that, is that clear? So, group of four, don't give anybody advice. All right? Jen is not allowed in any groups. 